Over the course of six weeks of testimony, Canadians heard from police and municipal officials in Ottawa, provincial representatives, and even from organizers of the so-called Freedom Convoy that occupied the capital for weeks earlier this year. This was all building, of course, to the appearance by senior members of Justin Trudeau's cabinet and the PM himself as they looked to justify the government's use of the Emergencies Act to dismantle what had become a disruptive protest. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. In the second of a special two-part episode on the Emergencies Act inquiry, National Post political reporters Chris Nardi and Ryan Tumulty join the show to discuss how intelligence officials viewed the convoy, how blockades at the border in Alberta and Ontario changed the conversation, and how ultimately ministers explained the government's actions. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So far, we've talked about things on the ground, the local response, but the crux of this is really the politics at the time, the actual invoking of the act and, and the evidence on which that was based and whether it was all justified. So Ryan, as the, as the convoy is on the ground in Ottawa, what are the conversations like within the federal government? What's going on behind the scenes there? You know, we heard um, even as late as um, you know, the last day of the inquiry when the prime minister testified that um, the federal government was more concerned about the convoy almost from the beginning. Uh, you know, some of the prime minister's staff talked about uh, seeing what they were seeing in terms of it coming and seeing what Ottawa police was saying about it only staying for a short period of time didn't seem right to them. Um, you know, the you, to put it in context, the Federal government would just the federal liberals had just finished an election, you know, the previous fall, uh, where they feel like they saw a lot of this sort of the kind of behavior that we saw from the convoy. They saw it out on the campaign trail. If you'll remember that campaign, you know, the prime minister was greeted by protesters many times, canceled a few events, had rocks thrown at them once. So, you know, when they were hearing that this wasn't a big deal they were very skeptical of that from the beginning, but also were aware of where the lines were. You know, they can't direct police. They can't tell police what to do, especially, you know, the Ottawa police who don't report to, to the federal government. So certainly that's what we heard from the beginning. And, and that seems to just have grown in concern over time. So as, as mentioned, we heard previously that there was some question among other policing agencies as to whether this was an actual security threat specifically in Ottawa. But when it came to federal intelligence officials, Chris, what were they saying to the federal government? A, a variety of different things. They and, and admittedly, there's a non-negligible you know, non part of it that is redacted and will remain redacted, um, it, presumably for the end of time. But um, they were warning of two things. First of all, uh, ultimately, we do know that the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, so basically our, our federal uh, non-digital spy agency, CSE being the spy agency, the digital spy agency. So CSIS never found a threat within the convoy that met its definition in the law of the – or never met basically its threshold of a threat that it could investigate. Now, admittedly, that threshold is very high. 
CSIS can only investigate threats, for example, in, on Canadian soil if they involve terrorism or extremism or foreign interference, right? Or 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 like you know attacks on Parliament or 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 mass you know mass attacks, basically. So it's a very high threshold, and we do know that CSIS had told the government on February 13th, which is the day before the Emergencies Act was invoked, that they never found a threat of that threshold. That being said, um, you know, notes that we see from intelligence reports from CSIS, from the OPP, from RCMP, uh, really do speak of this fear of what we call IMVEs. So that's ideologically motivated violent extremists. It's basically a fancy word to say people who hold extremist views and who want to then, who could then lead to violence. Misogyny, for example, the incel movement. Um, There's a whole host of, of definitions, but those IMVs are kind of what Freedom Convoy, if there had been an extremist or an attack, that's what it probably would have fell in under, that anti-government sentiment that could lead to violence. And the biggest fear was, in fact, a lone wolf attack. So we'll remember, for example, the attack here on Parliament Hill in 2014. That was a lone wolf attack. It was someone who was radicalized by extremist discourse and then attacked parliament. And that's exactly what they were concerned about. The, the, the extreme, some of the extreme discourse that were that was being shared by elements of the freedom convoy, then radicalizing someone at home who can only hear this, who who hears, you know, the discourse of Trudeau's a traitor and the government is 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 throwing your liberties liberties out the door and call for revolution. Well it just takes one person who is radicalized by that, gets you know, a gun in their hand and does a lone wolf attack. So that is, I think, the biggest fear that Canada's security agencies were sharing with government throughout and and this rising lumber of threats too towards public officials, right? Threats uh, of murdering Trudeau and all that. So wrap that all up together and and it kind of falls again under the 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 umbrella of what I was mentioning earlier, the fear of the unknown. They didn't know who was being radicalized by this discourse, and that's what they feared the most is what what I sensed. Now, in the midst of the convoy in Ottawa, we have border actions taken by aligned groups at Coutts in Alberta and at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor. And and both of these blockades were ultimately removed without the powers in the Emergencies Act. But Ryan, how did these acts change the discussion within Ottawa? What was the concern now that you had not just you know, streets blocked off in Ottawa, but you had some some key crossing points at the Canada-US border blocked off. Yeah, I mean, I think this really changed the dynamic for the federal government. Um, and for that matter, for the provincial government in Ontario, especially the Ambassador Bridge closure. You know, we heard, and there's a fair degree of debate about these estimates, but it was at least in the tens of millions of dollars a day in trade that was being diverted and possibly, you know, taken away because of that closure. It's, you know, it's the busiest, busiest bridge crossing, um, border crossing in the country. So that was a big issue. That was what was going on with Ambassador. And that was sort of an economic issue. I think the Coots blockade, uh, while also an economic issue, raised different concerns for the federal government. Because we do know, uh, you know, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino testified about this, that while the federal government was considering invoking the act, uh, a few people, basically just Mendicino and the prime minister, uh, were told about this uh, fear with the guns and the planned operation um, that the RCMP were considering. And I think that gave them a security fear. I think a part of what was going on in the federal government's mind was 
if weapons like that are in Coots, how do we know they're not in Ottawa? And certainly that was something that uh, a few cabinet ministers discussed. I think there was also just a broader fear that these border closures would spread. So, you know, we had Coots and the Ambassador Bridge. Uh, we also had a blockade in Emerson. There was sort of an attempted blockade at a crossing in BC, the, the Pacific Highway, I believe it's called. Uh, and there were concerns that there would be ones in Quebec and other places. So, you know, I, I think it was a little bit about a, um, a spiraling set of concerns there. You know, I, I am curious, looking at this from Alberta, we had uh, then Premier Jason Kenney kind of lambasting the federal government for the unnecessary invocation of the Emergencies Act, at least in his mind. You know, they were able to clear the coots, the RCMP, and were able to clear coots without these powers. They felt that the provincial government felt it, it was an overreach. During this period, how is the federal government communicating with provincial governments and, and municipal governments? What are we, what's the, the nature of, of those talks? <laughs> well, um, if text messages between Jason Kenney and the federal government or, uh, or municipal affairs minister at the time, McIver and the federal government are any indication, uh, the feds were communicating very poorly in the eyes of Alberta. Um, you know, we, we got colorful expressions like screwed the pooch or, uh, you know, it would be great if you guys answered me. Still haven't heard back, you know. Um, so throughout the convoy, Alberta's main problem notwithstanding the obvious, the blockades, was tow trucks. And this was a, a theme that came out through pretty much the entire testimony at all blockade points was this extreme difficulty to get tow trucks. And so what we do know is that Alberta was really, like other governments, struggling to get tow trucks that would act and, and basically help clear out the Freedom Convoy blockade at Coots. Um, and so what we do know is that Alberta, towards the early February, turned to the federal government and said, can you please help us get tow trucks? Can the Canadian Armed Forces and their Edmonton base provide us tow trucks? Um, and one source of frustration here was the fact that that request went out in, a, in the form of a letter by Minister McIver. Uh, they never, they claimed they never got a response from the government. It might have been verbal during a call at one point. That's pr somewhat unclear to me. But ultimately, what we do know is that McIver repeatedly would end up texting um then you know, public safety minister, uh, sorry, emergency preparedness minister Bill Blair saying, hey, why aren't you answering me? You're basically getting the sense that he felt ghosted by the federal government, even though it did become abundantly clear relatively quickly that the federal government would not, and the CAF especially, would not provide tow trucks. And then um, the federal government, when it came to interacting with Ottawa and the Ontario government, well, you got another sense of frustration, but this time from the federal government towards Doug Ford. Um, there was a, a trilateral or tripartite table that was set up between the three levels of government. And for the first two of three meetings, Ontario just never showed up, right? It was just Jim Watson, the mayor of Ottawa, and you know members of the Trudeau government, and Ontario just never showed up. And that reflected very poorly for the federal government, who we saw in call readouts with Mayor Jim Watson, said, like, Doug Ford's just trying to hide from his responsibility. That's something that the prime minister said himself about Doug Ford. So, um, you know, there's definitely levels of frustration. Every time one level of government perceived the other one to not be doing their part or not wanting to participate, they were very open in expressing that. And it was an extraordinary insight, really, into how governments communicate amongst themselves from inside, you know, when the doors are closed. And we got we got access to that. Definitely a lot of anger, uh, more swear words than we expected. And uh, overall, um, you know, there's probably going to be some bridge mending to do between levels of government after this. Yeah. Now, 
Ryan, I mean, a lot of the testimony that was heard in the early weeks, I feel like was laying the groundwork to the main event, which was cabinet and then the prime minister. And we heard from a lot of federal ministers, you know, Bill Blair, Dominic LeBlanc, Marco Medicino, Christia Freeland, and and others. They, I assume, were crafting their version in their testimony of why the Emergencies Act was essential to justify the actions. But what was the rationale that we heard from cabinet? So we actually sort of heard a, a, a buildup, I would say, of the rationale as we went through the week. You know, uh, people like Bill Blair and Marco Mendicino talked about some of the security concerns and the risks there and their concerns that police weren't otherwise getting the job done and that this was just going on and on with, with no real end in sight. Christia Freeland talked extensively, as you would expect as finance minister, about that economic impact, things with regards to the bridge and and other areas, you know, she talked about, talked about as a threat, you know, in the immediate term, but also, you know, the government was in the middle of uh, talks and negotiations about setting up new auto plants in Ontario. And, you know, that's the industry that was really being hit by that ambassador bridge closure. And she said she worried that it would, you know, be a long-term reputational harm that would, you know, people would view as as, as not a safe country to trade with uh, if we couldn't clear our own borders. So that was certainly a concern. Um, and then it sort of all led up to the prime minister who who laid out his case that despite what we'd heard from security agencies that maybe this issue wasn't necessary, he felt confident that it was. He also talked about, you know, thinking about the risk of not acting, of allowing a few more days, having considered the Emergencies Act and not invoking it, allowing a few more days to pass, what would happen in those few days? Would you know someone get hurt? Um, would there be an assault on police? Sort of issues like that. So you know they justified it as part of a global picture, as part of you know they they raised the concern that they didn't really have faith in the police. The prime minister basically came out and said it during his testimony, and that they didn't see another way out of this. We'll be right back. Now, Chris, this is all in the hands of the inquiry's commissioner, who will go away and and write a report. And I'm curious, what ultimately, what are the findings that he could make? And if... As part of the report, he suggests that, the, you know, I, I don't believe the government's argument that there was justification for invoking the Emergencies Act. Like, what happens then, if anything? Well, there's no real, you know, there's no sanctions. You know, Commissioner Paul Rulo can't recommend, you know, a fine to the Trudeau government. Um, for the most part, the way I understand it is that the, the sanction is political in terms of, of, you know, he will be known as the prime minister who unduly invoked the Emergencies Act, which comes with, you know, a significant curbing of, of civil liberties or, or at least the power to significantly curb them. Um, and, you know, and he'll have to live with that, right? Uh, but, you know, as Justin Trudeau testified during the last day of the commission, you know, he says, I feel very, very serene that I made the right choice. And he's confident to this day. Really, he expressed no doubts whatsoever about his government's decision. They saw what constituted to them a threat to national security. And, you know, the Emergencies Act does allow uh, cabinet, who's the ultimate arbiter of if there's a threat or not when it comes to the, you know, Emergencies Act of, you know, invocation, you know, he saw as the as the law reads, you know, 
a reasonable grounds that a public order emergency exists. That's how the law reads. They saw that. And so ultimately, you know, Rouleau may say, okay, yeah, I, I see, I understand your interpretation. That's valid. But if he ultimately says there wasn't, you know, it was undue invocation and you did not meet that threshold, well, we do know that the government's not going to fall because of it. Uh, the NDP's leader, Jagmeet Singh, has already said that he would not, you know, he would not disavow the government over that. So, Trudeau already has the support he needs. Um, and it'll ultimately be, you know, a, a political ramifications. It'll be, you know, uh, for sure fodder for, cannon fodder for his opponents to say, look at what he did, curb civil liberties, and he'll have to deal with that. But polling has shown over and over again that a majority of Canadians supported the use of the Emergencies Act to end those convoy. And in many ways, it does feel like people before this inquiry even began had already made up their mind about if they thought it was fair or not. So, you know, for sure there'll be an impact. Uh, he'll have to respond to it. Um, but, you know, no one's sending him to jail because he may have invoked the Emergency Act unduly. Last question on this, and I'll give both of you a chance to answer. You sat through weeks of, of testimony, um, heard from various people. Are there any takeaways for either of you? You know, Ryan, like the, the commissioner has said that he's concerned about the divisiveness that that this all brought up. Did that ring true to you? You know, was the convoy as bad as it was made out to be? Was the Emergencies Act as bad as it was made out to be? What was kind of the key takeaway for you? You know, I, I think on a, a broader level, the whole inquiry was sort of a, a fascinating insight into how government, the federal government in particular works, how they think about things, who they consult, who they talk to, how they talk amongst each other. Um, because Everything was laid to bear. You know, uh, it's a reporter's dream to be able to read cabinet minister text messages. And we got to read prime ministerial text messages. So it was a real insight into how they were thinking. I think on the broader questions of, you know, what does this mean for society? I think, you know, Commissioner Rouleau is going to have a lot of big questions to answer that go beyond just was the Emergencies Act used successfully? Um, you know, there's a line that's supposed to be drawn between politicians and police, and politicians should never direct police. Uh, but I think in the case of this, can, can politicians wait forever as police wait to enforce a law? You know, um, as much as the Ambassador Bridge was cleared uh, without the Emergencies Act and Coots was, in both cases, those those blockades happened for, you know, weeks and caused severe economic damage while the police waited to act. And so I think that's going to be a question for the commissioner. I think, you know, he is asked to look into disinformation and misinformation. And I think that's going to be a question for the commissioner. You could definitely tell that, you know, the convoy organizers operated in an entirely separate set of facts, uh, an entirely separate world. We didn't really even talk about this, but, you know, the convoy's lawyer came up with an entire different theory of the event that it was all a false flag operation to make the convoy organizers look bad and to give the government justification for invoking the Emergencies Act. I think that's something that Rouleau is going to have to deal with, this just complete divide in how people are viewing facts. And, and Chris, what about for you? Is it kind of that same, that level of insight that we were able to get in, into how the government was either working or not working? You know, some of the, the testimony about how things were on the ground gives me a sense that there wasn't a lot of functionality within municipal government and the relationship between police. But what was the main takeaway for you out of out of these six weeks? 
Honestly, the, the takeaway actually, and and looking forward, what I look forward to see the most now in the Rouleau report is going to be his recommendations, right? Because his mandate is first and foremost to um, to note if the legal threshold was met to invoke the Emergencies Act. But beyond that, is it, he has a wider mandate to make a series of recommendations on how to make sure that something like this never happens again, um, and and. To Ryan's point, what we saw throughout six weeks of testimony was that during the convoy protests, there's just this sheer amount of, of disorganization amongst police, uh, you know, particularly in Ottawa, I have to say, just sheer amount of disorganization sorry, and, and infighting that incredibly hampered um, the police's ability to enforce law and order, right? And from the moment that people were allowed to set up 18-wheeler trucks and rigs on Wellington Street and park them, basically throw the keys out the window and leave them there for three weeks and a half, was the was the first fatal mistake. Something that you know RCMP, the RCMP union said in their closing statement was a terrible mistake that had they been in control of the situation, never would have allowed in the first place. So what we did see was an incredible insight, despite redactions and despite you know some complaints of lack of transparency. We did it was this was just an incredible exercise in seeing how government works and, and getting insight into even intelligence reports. Um, it was incredible insight into how government speaks to itself internally, um, how incredibly poorly sometimes it can communicate, and not just government but police forces as well. Uh, it was a very interesting, I think, look into the incredible divide that exists now between um, you know some people's perception of you know, the strong anti-government feeling and and how that can completely warp people's perception of an event uh, and the divide that absolutely needs to be addressed I think so that people can actually you know start reconciling their visions of history quite frankly was this a peace and love event was this an occupation that was full of assault you know those are two seemingly irreconcilable differences and there's definitely need to be work done to kind of start repairing those bridges. Um, but like I, you know, like I said, the Rulo Report's job is to come out with um, recommendations on how to make sure this doesn't happen again. I suspect there will be recommendations on how politicians could and should be able to interact with police in a healthy way. And I think that uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where he assigns blame. Mm-hmm. Well, I know we're all, we'll all be looking uh forward to and closely at the Ruler Report and curious to see how things go forward from here. Ryan, Chris, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having us. No problem. 10-3 is produced by Tyler Dawson. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guests, Chris Nardi and Ryan Tumulty. More from them at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.